Poland, uh, things that come to mind, not a whole lot, no. <laughs> Poland, probably not a whole lot. Uh, Polish sausage. No, I don't know anything about that country. Poland, sausages, <laughs> pierogies. Is that it? We hope it's not. That's what we're going to try to show you. Hi, I'm Małgorzata Bonikowska, your host and podcast producer, and you're listening to episode 79 of Podcast, recorded and produced in Toronto, Canada, but taking you, the listeners, all over the world. In its 178 episodes, Polcast, the first ever English language podcast about Poland and Poles around the world, has featured around 150 stories. My interviews with amazing people of many nationalities who live in many countries, with one thing in common, a connection with Poland. Today, I will talk to two guests. One of them is Joanna Czapka Sangster a Polish-Canadian violinist from Edmonton, Alberta, whom you met and heard on the previous episode of Polcast. Joanna and I talked about Polish Christmas music, and I'm really happy that you loved the interview and her musical illustrations of that talk. We both announced that we were going to continue, and in this episode you will hear part two of our conversation. My second guest is special to me. For years, I tried to convince him to agree to an interview, and every time I heard, no, you're my mom. I've wanted to speak to Bart Bonikowski, not because he's my son, but because he's an American sociologist specializing in what really matters these days, nationalism, populism, and radical right movements in the U.S. and Europe. Educated in Canada and in the U.S. with a Ph.D. from Princeton, Bart was a professor at the Department of Sociology at Harvard University until 2020, when he moved to NYU, New York University, where he is an associate professor. He agreed to talk to me the day after the presidential inauguration about Amanda Gorman, that charismatic 22-year-old poet who the whole world is talking about. Why Bart Bonikowski? Because he was Amanda's teacher and advisor at Harvard and got to know her quite well. I reached Bart in New York City. So it's been ages because I've asked you so many times to give me an interview, but you always say no because of our relationship, family relationship. But I finally, finally, finally convinced you. And we're not going to talk about everything you do because you do so much stuff on all the things that are relevant today, um, but just maybe two things. First of all, a very, very brief uh, summary of how you feel um, after yesterday. I, I feel relieved to some degree. I mean, I, I had expected since about November 4th uh, that Biden would be president on January 20th. I don't think there was any question about it, but exactly what those uh, uh, two months would bring was uncertain. So there was a lot of risk involved, right? We didn't know what Trump was going to do in the meantime, whether he was going to start an international conflict, whether he was going to impose uh, emergency measures at home. Uh, we didn't know what his supporters, especially on the extreme right, would do. And so uh, it was definitely a precarious moment in U.S. history. Uh, and certainly on January 6th, with the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol, we saw what can happen. Uh, and that was a pretty disconcerting moment, I think, for most Americans and people outside of the U.S. as well. Uh, so, you know, there was a lot uh, at stake. Uh, but fortunately, uh, aside from that one really terrible incident, things uh, turned out relatively smoothly. And uh, there definitely there's a feeling, I think, in the country today that it's a dawn of a new political era. How long it lasts and how peaceful it is will, it remains to be seen. But, it's, but things are definitely better today than they were just uh, yesterday. Did anything surprise you? Was everything the way you expected yesterday? Yeah, yesterday everything was pretty much the way I expected it in the sense that Democrats um, hit all the symbolic and discursive notes that I had expected. You know, they evoked a creedal notion of American nationalism, high in, in national pride, but also very inclusive 
featuring you know diverse uh, performers and diverse um, participants in the inauguration. So basically uh, putting forth a, a new vision for America, the, the kind of inclusive America, a nation of immigrants, a multicultural nation. So that's what one would expect them to do, especially after the dark period of the last four years. But I was surprised at how well everything came together given the constraints imposed by, by the pandemic. So it was obviously unclear how, how things were going to play out, um, given that they couldn't really have a large audience. And it turned out beautifully. I mean, I think they, they just did a terrific job in terms of setting up the entire event and uh, featuring the speakers they did. Uh, I was particularly happy to see Amanda Gorman, the uh, Youth Poet Laureate, deliver her poem, which was uh, just absolutely beautiful. Uh, and, you know, in the other uh, poignant moment, I think particularly poignant moment was the swearing of, of Kamala Harris, first woman vice president, first Indian American, first Jamaican American uh, to be sworn into such a high office. And uh, it was a, an incredible moment, I think, for most people uh, in, in the United States. So, you know, I'm not sure if that was expected or unexpected, but it was it was certainly poignant and tear jerking um, and important. Uh, so I think that, you know, that that's one takeaway. I guess the other thing that was surprising, maybe not surprising from the standpoint of the previous week, but surprising in the long run, was the absence of Donald Trump's heckling of the event. And that was entirely due to the fact that Twitter took down his account and so did other social media uh, networks. So, you know, it, uh, normally what would be happening is that there would be a constant a barrage of tweets uh, what it, that would be criticizing the event, that would be promoting uh, ethnonationalism, white supremacism maybe, that would be continuing to undermine the legitimacy of the election and um, further uh, radicalizing and, and, um, and stoking the fears of his supporters, but none of that happened. So as a result, there was this this calm and quiet uh, uh, on the internet uh, and in the media that really has been missing for the last four years, right? More than four years since we counted the campaign, five and a half years, where every day the media hang on to every word that Donald Trump says, and most of the things he says are incendiary and uh, and highly objectionable. So, so I think there was this this surprising calm and quiet around it all. I think he also went more quietly than many people had expected. And I think that's partly a result, actually, of the insurrection and its aftermath. Uh, in some ways, that January 6th insurrection was a high watermark uh, for white extremism. And um, the reason it succeeded in the short run was not so much the power of white supremacy, but rather the absence of the state, right? Basically, the police were largely missing in action, uh, and the, the insurrectionists were allowed to walk into the Capitol. So once that event um, had the effect, this shocking effect on, on American politics that it did, I think the result was that the government stepped up, uh, and Washington, D.C. became a fortress. Uh, and there was, I think, some wind was taken out of the, of the sails of, of extremist movements, and they didn't show up. They had planned to organize protests and, and riots in all state capitals throughout the country. And in most cases, one or two people turned out, not more than that. Um, I think part of it is just that, that law enforcement finally did its job after January 6th uh, and arrested a lot of the people involved in that, in that insurrection. It wasn't very hard because most of them proudly proclaimed their allegiance to, to extremism on the internet, including their names and addresses and all of that. So very quickly, uh, the FBI and, uh, and other agencies went after them, which I think scared off um, other maybe um, less committed followers uh, in that movement. So anyway, the point is that, that actually the, the last few days were much more peaceful than I think a lot of people expected them to be. Now, among many firsts, and we can have a long list, it doesn't make any sense because everybody knows them, among many of these firsts was the fact that the outgoing president did not attend the inauguration. Mm -hmm. And, well, my question is, well, do you think that he simply could not face it? It was too much for him? Or do you think this was a very well thought out strategic move in the sense that he did not want to lose the people that really follow him? Uh, it may have been a little bit of both. I'm not sure exactly how Donald Trump's psychology works. Uh, I imagine, based on what we know about him, that he cannot face defeat of any sort. So, And he is, basically has the maturity of a petulant young child. So I think the idea of actually going there and sitting through the inauguration was something he couldn't 
personally handle. Uh, so I imagine there is that element. And if you think back to the one time in, uh, when he had to sit through public humiliation, that was at the uh, Washington Correspondents' Dinner when Barack Obama roasted him in front of a, a national audience. And, uh, uh, and that was so humiliating for him that uh, you know, many people say that that was the moment he decided to run. So I think there is that personal element. He just cannot face the music. Uh, but then you know, possibly there was some strategy to it as well, although I'm not sure how much. Um, I think for a public figure whose entire appeal or a large part of his appeal is based on domination and, and brute use of force uh, against opponents, um, just the fact that he's gone, I think, is such a blow to his reputation among his followers that I'm not sure just how much charisma and potency there is left in his persona. And I think if had he been on social media, he could have kept up the kind of appearance of strength. But since that channel was no longer available, he kind of just went quietly into oblivion. And I, and I think, you know, who knows what's going to happen, but there is some possibility that that final act, which is seen, I think, by most people as, as an act of weakness, most likely going to cost him to some degree in terms of his long-term political support. Uh, but, you know, who knows? Uh, so I think really there are kind of going forward, there are really three separate questions. What happens to Trump and Trumpism? What happens to the... Republican Party, and then what happens to white nationalist extremism. And those three things are interrelated, but they're not one and the same. And so I think, you know, one can sort of try to prognosticate on each one of those three fronts separately. Which we're not going to do because we don't have time for that. But the reason why we're really talking is uh, quite an amazing thing. Somebody said she stole the show yesterday, right? Amanda was so incredible and did such a fantastic job with her beautiful poem. And she's also such an expressive, such a, such a genuine person. You have a very special relationship with her, and that's why we're talking. Amanda Gorman is just an incredible artist, uh, a brilliant poet, and uh, a, really a special person. Uh, I know that because when I was um, on the faculty uh, at Harvard University, I was her teacher and advisor in the sociology department. She graduated with a uh, BA in sociology. And uh, yeah, so I, I taught her in a course on political sociology where we covered a lot of topics related to um, American and international politics, including the rise of radical politics. And she was just a star in that course. The material was, I think, quite personal for her, and she was very passionate about it. Uh, so I got to know her through that course. And then subsequently, in her senior year, she did an independent study in preparation for a book that she uh, is writing, and she did that under my supervision. And uh, it was a real treat to work with her closely. So we spent many interesting moments in office hours just discussing her trajectory, her poetry, her uh, academic interests, and, and of course, the specific work that she was, she was undertaking uh, with my help. But uh, I must say, I can't take any credit for her brilliance or her performance yesterday. Uh, she was already incredible when I met her. Uh, and, she, you know, she's a, a highly accomplished uh, poet already at the age of 22. She has two books out, which skyrocketed to the top of the Amazon bestseller list just yesterday over the course of that day. And she has many other things in store that we will be hearing about. So, so I, I, you know, if anything, I just had the great fortune of having her in the class and getting to know her and, and watching her work blossom. What is she like? She's exactly what you see in TV interviews. And that's kind of an amazing thing about her. There is no kind of fabricated persona. There is no pretense in her. She's just exactly what you see. She's brilliant. She is genuine. She is funny and highly personable. Uh, and also just very self-aware and quite humble. So even despite her tremendous success, and she's again, she's already had many successes prior to yesterday, uh, she had many successes prior to yesterday. Um, despite all of that, she's just um, Amanda Gorman from LA, you know, who keeps um, writing poems and uh, and thinking of new creative projects. Uh, and all of the you know all of that work, the creative work, is informed by her unwavering commitment to social justice, to the legacy of Black artists and 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 her ancestry in general, the importance of of fighting for equality, racial justice. Um, I mean, she's really a remarkable human being. So I knew that she was going to perform uh, yesterday, and that she was going to recite her own work. And as soon as I found that out, I had absolutely no doubt 
just how it would go. I mean, I've seen her recite her work before and she is spellbinding. Um, so I knew, she, I knew it would go well and I was really excited that the world would get to hear her. In fact, I, I sent her a, a message yesterday morning and she was at the Capitol at the time and I just, you know, to congratulate her and tell her we're all watching. And she was, she was responded saying how excited she was and how amazing it is that this is where she is. So I, again, I expected her to do great. Maybe I didn't quite expect that she would overshadow everyone else and yeah. steal, steal the entire show, giving the, given the importance of the moment and so many of the personalities on stage. But, you know, that's Amanda. She always impresses and never, never disappoints. So, you know, in the aftermath of her beautiful recitation, she immediately became uh, involved in many conversations on Twitter with Barack Obama, with Hillary Clinton, with Lynn manuel Miranda, with Oprah Winfrey, and so forth. Uh, you know, they all tweeted their support for her and just the sentiment of how how incredibly impressed they were with her. Uh, and so that was one thing. And of course, she spent the entire day in interviews in, in the media and did a wonderful job. But if again, if anyone wants to see what Amanda is like in person, it's enough to just see any of those interviews. That's her in a nutshell. Uh, the interview with uh, Anderson Cooper yesterday was particularly yeah that uh, was beautiful really, really beautiful and uh and really captured her personality uh, in a lovely way as well as his <laughs> <laughs> yeah there's a funny story about that tweet right because you tweeted to her your congratulations and what happened with that tweet is also something that shows first of all i guess the power of social media and twitter generally poor trump <laughs> being cut off but also how incredibly people respond to her suddenly appearing on the world stage because she, obviously she must have been popular because she was approached and asked by the Biden team to perform and to write a poem. But, you know, what happened after yesterday is, is like an explosion of a volcano. So right. tell us that funny tweet story. Well, my tweet is pale as a comparison to the traffic that she's been getting. But uh, yeah, at some point the day before inauguration, I just tweeted out uh, an interview with her and with a comment saying how proud I am of her and that how lucky I was to, to have been able to teach her and advise her while she was at Harvard. And that went viral uh, in its own right. It received something like one and a half million impressions and a bunch of likes and retweets. And so uh, one and a half million. Yeah, so that's big for me. But of course, if you look at Amanda's account, she just, uh, in the course of one day, she skyrocketed to almost a million followers, not retweets, followers of her own. Uh, and just, you know, the amount of the amount of attention she's getting now, well-deserved attention is just, uh, it's colossal. So, so that, you know, that's great. But I really appreciated the responses to my tweet. They ranged from some really kind comments about the importance of education and, and sort yeah. of how important that's teachers great. are, which was really sweet. But there are others that were just, you know, people from all walks of life. This tweet somehow reached people outside of my sort of immediate network uh, and just went out there into the world. And, um, and, you know, just seeing how people responded to that interview. And, and the interview, specific interview that I retweeted was really fun because it happened before inauguration. And it was sort of her talking about, you know, typical and natural, sort of very kind of genuine Amanda way about how she prepares for her for her uh, um, speeches, for her uh, for her public appearances, but also about her plans for for running for president. And she's exactly. been talking about this for years. I mean, as as wow. far back as I as I as I've known her, she's always said that one day she will be president. And and in that interview, she very sweetly said that she often thinks of herself as commander in chief, right? As in <laughs> commander, it's Amanda, commander in chief. And so a lot of people who were who were reading the tweet that I sent out and watching that interview responded you know in really sweet ways about that term and how they love it and how they can't wait for to vote for her when she runs and so you know it was just a really nice response so that's great there's a speech impediment story which was really interesting because I had no idea about Anderson Cooper having the same problem and yesterday they talked about it uh, which was really amazing. And and you know something about it, right? Because she said that she very recently uh, coped with that, which was something to do with uh, pronouncing the letter R. Yeah, I mean, it was it was a minor speech impediment that in no way complicated her ability to communicate. But yeah, she had a sort of a, a, the way she pronounced R was um, the letter R was a little different. Uh, and that's certainly how I remember her when when she was in my class and when uh, we were working together a couple of years ago. Uh, but what's remarkable is, as of yesterday, that problem has been fixed. So she's been clearly working on it over the last while. Yeah, she said two years. Presumably, you know, as, as she's been 
uh, getting more public attention and realizing that she's got to do mm -hmm. more and more public appearances. She, it, it was probably something that was important to her, much as dealing with his stutter was important to Anderson Cooper and same with Joe Biden, who because was, he also had the who stuttered as a young person. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so, you know, it's a remarkable testament to to their grit and, and determination to work on something like that. And so, so yeah, she, her R's are, her, are back to, to, uh, to the way most people say them. It's but interesting it was, because the letter R is pronounced by so many people in so many different ways. Yeah. In Polish, nobody even thinks it's an impediment. You just say it in a different way. People yeah. say R, people say R. Right. People roll it, people don't roll it. Interesting. I, I thought it was endearing and it was just part of who she was. But, you know, it's amazing mm. that she was able to change it since she wanted to. So where is Amanda now in terms of her academic career? Oh, she graduated from Harvard last year. So she's done with college and with uh, her academic career for now. Uh, and she's devoting herself uh, fully, as far as I know, to her poetry, to her books. So she's got one children's book out, one uh, poetry collection out, uh, and to other work. Already when I knew her at Harvard pre-COVID, she had all kinds of opportunities to collaborate with companies, to collaborate with artists who already knew about her. Uh, and the way they knew about her is that she was actually the first National Youth Poet Laureate. This was, a, this was not something that, that's new. That this, is, this has been a case for a few years now. So she, that gave her quite a bit of exposure uh, over the last few years. And so, so she had all these collaborative projects already in the works, and I imagine there'll be many more. I mean, one interesting thing after yesterday's a recitation was that in the poem she recited, she included some references to Hamilton. And Lin-Manuel Miranda, who wrote Hamilton, uh, uh, tweeted to her and said, you know, said that congratulations, this was great, and mentioned something about Hamilton. And she responded to him saying, well, you know, I, I put those references to Hamilton there on purpose, and I'm a huge fan. And so, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if somewhere down the road, they'll do something together. I'm sure there'll be all kinds of opportunities that open up for her, um, even more so than, than, than prior to yesterday's inaugural performance. Uh, and, you know, and one thing that, that was quite remarkable is when she worked with me in her senior year on this independent project, it was in preparation for her, for her creative work. So she was going to write a book that drew on the history of, uh, of slavery in the United States. And so she did some primary source research under my, technically under my supervision, but really independently on magic and myths among African slaves in the United States and the response to those uh, mythical beliefs by the white majority. And so I don't want to get into too much detail because I don't want to scoop her work, but, but uh, you know, I imagine that those, those themes that she was researching will make it into her future fiction work uh, as well. So uh, there's a lot more that's coming. And I, I have a, a pretty good sense that we'll be seeing a lot more of Amanda Gorman and celebrating many more of her successes. She is really uh, a force to be reckoned with uh, in terms of creative passion for social justice and the arts. And uh, uh, she's a, a truly remarkable person. So uh, I feel very fortunate to have had a chance to know her and to watch her spellbinding performance yesterday during inauguration. Thank you. That was great. And I will push for more interviews because I do want to talk a lot more about the right wing. Okay. And I want to talk a lot more about the Republican Party, about the future, about your research related to all this. So anyway, have a wonderful day in New York. And thank you so much. Thank you for having me. To learn more about Amanda Gorman and Bart Bonikowski, please go to our website, mypolcast.com. And now, let's talk about music, about Polish Christmas music. This is part two of my conversation with Joanna Czapka-Sangster, Polish-Canadian violinist. I reached her in Edmonton. Here we go, Joasia, again. My last conversation with you was really wonderful. And many people said it was so beautiful to hear all these stories about the carols and Christmas music traditions. This is the new year and we have already gone through our Christmas time, but I want to ask you, how was your Christmas? Oh, hello, Małgosiu. Hello, everybody. It's so nice to hear um, that people enjoy the stories about music because, I mean, this is beautiful subject that... Uh, I would be surprised if they didn't, <laughs> to be honest. Um, Christmas, uh, Vigilia uh, in Polish, Christmas Eve, uh, when this day happens, it always reminds me of very, very unique uh, customs. And one of them is to have an extra place setting 
at the table. I found out uh, that there are three explanations. The first one uh, goes back to pagan um, Slavic times when uh, pagans organized a big feast at, at the end of the year to uh, commemorate and celebrate ancestors that uh, passed away. And uh, they had a special chair for them. And uh, that feast was called Obiad, believe it or not, which in Polish is uh, dinner, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Second reason explanation is that that extra setting symbolizes also openness for a uh, holy family that had to escape to Egypt uh, and then ended up in, in a manger unexpectedly. So it symbolizes that your doors have to be open because you never know what kind of state your guests might be and what they might need. Mm-hmm. And of course, the third reason is it symbolizes uh, Polish hospitality, which is famous in the world. Right. So another one that is unique, I think, for our um, Christmas Eve is that uh, at midnight, the animals, they all speak human language, yes. And so you have to be super extra nice. I know. Because they will tell you the truth, what they think about you. Well, we talked about uh, the um, um, the word kolenda, carol. Mm-hmm. And uh, originally it was a New Year's uh, song because it comes from uh, uh, Julius calendar uh, and Latin language, which means uh, the first day of the month. So it was originally a New Year's uh, so I would like to also suggest that we listen to one of my favorite one, which is called Jesus Malusienki. means little baby Jesus. And it will be performed by Capella Gadanendi, which is a beautiful uh, vocal and instrumental ensemble from my city, from time. And it was formed in 1981. I remember actually when it was founded. So I hope you enjoy this one. Last time we also said that there is a difference between two kinds of um, musical pieces uh, that are played around Christmas time, and that one is the carols, which is kolende, and then the other one is called pastorauki. What is really the difference between those two? Uh, pastorauka is, uh, as the name uh, suggests, is uh, connected to sh- uh, shepherds. Actually, it's about pastoral theme, and it's uh, much less religious than colendas are, which are, which are com- totally related to the birth of Jesus. Uh, pastorals, pastorauki, are talking about stories that are related to the country you are performing them at. They go back in Poland uh, 
17th century, actually. And at first, they were performed by um, troubadours, by the musicians that were traveling musicians. There's uh, a lot of them that we think that they are colendas. They are pastorals, pastorauki. For instance, uh, last time we spoke about your favorite colenda, which is uh, Lulajze Jezuniu. Mm-hmm. And Lulajze Jezuniu, as I found out, is not a colenda. It's a pastorauka. Because it brings the baby Jesus closer to us uh, as a mother to baby, as a little baby that is vulnerable. There is uh, the ho- all holiness of it is non-existing. You know, it brings you closer to you as a human being. And um, another one that is related to, of course, vulnerable baby uh, is uh, pastoral um, called Maluski Maluski, which yeah. I have to say it's my favorite uh, kolenda and it's a Highlanders kolenda. So mm-hmm. uh, my special gift to you This was beautiful. Thank you so much. It was a real treat. And um, yeah, everybody can now, uh, you know, appreciate not only how well you talk about it, but how well you actually perform it when you play. Oh, thank you. So we have Pastorauki, we talked about Kolende, and there's something that's called Yasełka. But before we, we get to Yasełka, uh, which is uh, also connected to uh, Pastorauki, I would like to just stay a little bit around Polish mountains and mm-hmm. Highlanders. That's uh, where you come from. But you, you said you came from Gdańsk. I, I yes. don't understand. Because <laughs> it's on two opposite sides of the country. I know. <laughs> I know. My dad is a Highlander. He comes from really, really big family. And I've been always fascinated with Highlanders' folk, which is different as any other in Poland. That is alive, that it's not just a museum or um, a a folk ensemble from the region. They actually practice their um, customs, uh, the way they dress, the way they speak, and they sing and play. Uh, And they pass it on from generation to generation. My grandfather played uh, violin. Uh, He learned on his own. He was mm-hmm. amazing artist, made violin actually himself. He was very, very artistically inclined. And mm-hmm. uh, coming back to our uh, Christmas stories, uh, I would like to also uh, tell you that uh, that those pastorals, um, since they were connected to shepherds, and the shepherds very often in, in Polish kolendas were mm-hmm. Highlanders because that's what they do for a living. Yep. They actually take care of sheep. Yeah. Big herds of sheep that actually they travel with them to the higher parts of the mountains for the whole season, right? Absolutely. In fact, my cousin who lives near Zakopane does it every year. 200 sheep and they spend summers up 
in the mountains. So Colenta is the song related to Christmas, but it also means visit. You go with Colenda and, and visit your neighbors. And then you expect those Colendnice, um, carolers, carolers mm-hmm. to be paid for their visits. So Colenda is, uh, means visit, but also Colenda means to be paid for the visit, which is very interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would love to present you with just a little bit of true Highlanders pastoral that is based on Highlanders melody. Fantastic. So let's listen to that and hopefully you'll be able to tell that this is a very special kind of music, which it is, absolutely. So it's Guralska Pastorauka. Yes. So we're coming down from the mountains, and uh, there was something that you said last time which really interested me. You said that you mentioned that you actually not only sing carols uh, or kolende at home, but you also dance to them. And mm-hmm. then you told us last time that many of these very famous kolende carols are in fact traditional Polish dances. Yes, and that uh, happened uh, throughout the centuries. At first. Uh, as we mentioned last time, the first carol was heard in Poland in the 15th century. Carols have various melodies, but in order to familiarize them to, to the people of Poland, uh, the easiest way was to make the story related to Polish stories. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we have five national dances, Kujawiak. If you remember, the very first uh, Kolenda that we played for you, Jesus Malusienki, mm-hmm. is actually Kujawiak. Kujawiak is a true Polish dance from central Poland. The second one is Polones, of course, which is not mm-hmm. only folk dance, but it's actually a national dance. Uh, we talked about it last time, which is Buksien Rodzi, the, the most famous Kolenda. And this is not pastoral, this is Kolenda for sure. Mm-hmm. Another one is Mazur. Mazurka for yeah. some people, uh, which is also danced in three. It's kind of similar to Polonaise, but it's uh, less uh, noble, I would say. And uh, the oldest Polish carol, Żłobieleży, is written in the form mm-hmm. of Mazur. Then there is Krakowiak from Kraków region, uh, which is uh, danced in two. Przybierzeli do Betlejem, which we'll play for you and we'll be talking about Kraków region. And also, uh, we have a pastoral in the, the fastest Polish 
dance, um, Oberek is from central and eastern Poland, and it's called Hey Dzień Narodzenia. So we'll listen to that. Yes. dances that you mentioned, which is so very popular in Poland, it's, a, it's one of the folk dances in Poland, one of those five most famous ones is Krakowiak, right? Which obviously comes from the area of Krakow, the old Polish capital, uh, which is a beautiful, amazing old city with this great, great castle and so many other amazing places to visit. But it's got something else, right? Something very special, uh, which is called Szopka Krakowska. So I want you to talk about that because this is quite unique. Yes. Szopki Krakowskie are very much related to Jasełka. Jasełka comes from the word Jasło, which, which is żłób, which means manger. Those are basically stories related to very well-known uh, nativity scenes that include uh, baby Jesus, Joseph, Mary, a whole bunch of animals, uh, sometimes three wise men. And in the beginning, they were um, very static. People needed uh, an entertainment. They go back all the way to 13th century. Mm. The founder of uh, Yasełka was uh, St. Francis. So at first, they were, I would say, performed, because then from being static, they started moving uh, by the order of St. Francis, like in their churches, by the monks. Uh, from their churches, they came out to the streets because their stories were so entertaining that the church started protesting that this is too much and not serious enough. So they moved out from churches uh, to the streets. And our beautiful city of Krakow, in about 19th century, um, people started building those nativity scenes surrounded uh, by the architecture of Krakow. And this is so unique. We will definitely put uh, links uh, on our website, mypolcast.com, in this episode, so people can actually see this, because this is spectacular. And there are some competitions, as I know. That's right. right. The tradition started in the, in the middle of the uh, 19th century. In 1937, that is the year that uh, people actually started competing. And at first, they were bringing them to the bottom of, uh, of Adam Mickiewicz monument, famous Polish poet, which, which is located in the middle of Rynek, the square in Krakow. Now, it's all more organized and the uh, historical museum of the city of Krakow is taking care of this competition, which happens uh, every year. I would like us to listen to a little bit of, of promised um, uh, Krakowiak. Mm -hmm. which is pastoral and it's it's, it's very uh, upbeat dance. Krakowiak, uh, which is very fast 
a syncopated dance in twos, originally always performed uh, in Krakow in an uh, original Krakowian costume. So, przybierzeli do betraje. actually came all the way from the 15th century to the 19th century. But I think what's important to um, understand is that the tradition of writing and composing a kolendy and pastorauki, well, never really stopped. So we have some that are current, contemporary, and are still being created. Yes, uh, especially um, and historically, uh, those pastorauki, since they were so Polish and so connected to Polish tradition, to Polish reality, they are in, in all of our hearts. Nobody really taught us them. They were passed to us from our parents, singing them in church or wherever, uh, hearing them on the streets or um, on TV. Therefore, they're very patriotic, actually. So uh, during really harsh, hard times for for our country, for Poland, uh, during, for instance, times of partitions, when Poland did not exist, during the war, during the martial law, and they never stopped actually being created. So um, I know many that uh, are current. This Christmas, I ran into an amazing and unique uh, uh, kolenda, which is called Trudna Kolenda. It talks about a Which pandemic. Means difficult. It means a difficult Kolenda, right? It talks about pandemic and this very uh, unusual oh. way we Christmas. all uh, spent Christmas uh, being separated from each other. And so I would like to present uh, just a little sample of this. And it comes from uh, Gdańsk, uh, from uh, this amazing church of uh, St. John of Gdańsk. To nie jest łatwa kolenda. Czym mniejsze tym razem święta. Zatruty świat, zatarty ślad, jak spojrzeć to. talked about the old ones we talked about the ones that are being created now like the one we've just heard which is about the pandemic what can be more up to date than this but what's really interesting i i, I think is you also mentioned to me that uh, the musical style in which they're done also varies so that for example you might have 
carols, which are actually composed as jazz. Yes. Uh, I mean, they are not necessarily composed, it's just they are arranged in a jazz way. That actually uh, happens very much in um, uh, Western um, culture, especially in North America. We all know many Christmas songs, Christmas carols yeah. that are arranged in uh, various genres. The same thing is happening in Poland. However, it's a, a very recent a tendency and um, I I love jazz. I have many friends, great uh, jazz musicians in Poland, and I would love to present to you a sample of uh, of a group uh, that it actually consists of a whole bunch of my friends from uh, Kasuby, uh, Zhukovo, a, a children's choir with few jazz musicians, and they will play their version of Gdysian Christus Rodzi, the very famous kolenda. Very famous traditional kolenda, which is now, you're going to listen to this in the jazz rendition. Yes. That's quite a nice uh, journey you've taken us on again. Uh, what are we finishing with? We are finishing with the time that we are in right now. We <laughs> just celebrated uh, kind of the end of Christmas time. And now we are in time of carnival. Time of big parties. Yeah. No big parties in the pandemic. So at least we can yeah, dream. <laughs> so we can dream, but we the tradition is tradition. So... If yeah. we cannot participate in those big parties, we can always imagine them and we can definitely listen to a party music. So I would love to end it on a very positive, optimistic and happy note and um, present to you Kolenda uh, by one of my favorite groups, from Poland, which doesn't exist anymore. I know, this is such a shame they don't exist anymore. I know, Aww. but the song is so happy. Uh, the group is called Skaldowie mm -hmm. uh, from Kraków region. Oh. And I'm sure you will enjoy it. So I would love to, to, to wish you a beautiful carnival. <laughs> and of course, we all know that carnival ends uh, with the Ash Wednesday, right? That's uh, right. So, so how much time do we have to celebrate it in a happy, joyous way? Six weeks or something. Okay, well, the pandemic is not going to go away, but we can at least listen to this gorgeous, uh, beautiful kolenda, Benji kolenda. Thank you for taking us again on that great journey. And what I would like to ask you, and I wonder if you're going to say yes, is uh, whether we can finish the episode... Uh, which is not finishing yet, but which we will finish at some point with something that you would still play for us. So what's the answer? Yes or no? 
Of course, yes. <laughs> uh, I will play for you uh, a fragment uh, of the sample of uh, Polish national dance Kujawiak, which I learned when I was a little girl at school, uh, Kujawiak by uh, Henryk Wieniawski, a famous mm-hmm. Polish composer of violin. It has slow part and upbeat part. Thank you so much, Joanna, and let's listen to Benji Kolenda by non-existing but never forgotten fantastic group Kaldovia. Thank you very much. Jezusie, Jezusie, plamy są na obrusie, trzeba je brać, trzeba je brać. I tu ten obszędzie, oj, będzie, będzie kolenda. I u nas i wszędzie, oj, będzie, będzie kolenda. Z serca uleczy, zapłonie od świeczek, i dzień ten przeminie, kolenda popłynie przez I hope you have found this episode interesting. If you have more time now, and many people do because of the pandemic, please listen to the previous 78 episodes if you haven't heard them yet, we have featured fascinating people from all over the world with one thing in common, a connection to Poland. And don't forget to visit Polcast on Facebook. Every day, there are plenty of great stories about Poland there as well. It's there that you can find out what's written about Poland all over the world, as well as get some really interesting Polish stories, all in English. And if you know of a story worth featuring on podcast, please let me know. If you would like to help me make podcast, you can help by supporting it financially. You can do so by visiting mypolcast.com support. Any small amount helps, trust me. People don't go out these days to have coffee and donuts anymore, which is so sad. So maybe you could contribute what that coffee would cost you to our podcast crowdfunding campaign. And I want to take this opportunity to thank everybody who is our podcast supporter. Your help is really, really, really appreciated. And I leave you with another piece of Christmas Polish music played by Joanna Czapka-Sangster from Edmonton, whom you heard both today and on the previous episode. Here is Joanna and her violin. <laughs> <laughs> 